There's a group of people in Alberta who want to farm, but farm in a way that's good for the land, good for ecology. This group tends to play the direct marketing game, manage smaller parcels of land, and be involved in more hands-on types of agriculture like veggies, berries, sheep, and goats. The majority of people in this group identify as female too. All of the people in this group did not grow up on a farm. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're going to continue our discussion about new farmers being a farm solution that's also a climate solution. Welcome to part two of our two-part series on new farmers. That is, agriculture producers who did not grow up on a farm or ranch, but are currently involved in agriculture in some capacity. And I really hope I didn't make it sound like new farmers exist in Alberta and only Alberta. We are an Alberta-based podcast, but I full well recognize that new farmers can be found across Canada and in other parts of the world. If you haven't listened to part one of the series, which is episode 39, I do recommend listening to that one first. So you might want to hit pause on this episode right now. If you have listened to episode 39, but you need a bit of a refresher, here's a quick recap. Why are new farmers a climate solution? You know, people want to do good for the planet and people see farming as a practical way to do that. We can learn so much about just observing the ecosystem and how it functions from traditional histories of Indigenous people. Sometimes I describe the work of young agrarians as that we're basically like reweaving social networks in, in rural. Um, and it's in those social networks where people are supported to thrive. I never know how to describe the land access issue. Purchasing a farm is different than land access. Um, land access is more about being able to access the resource on which to farm. But new farmers and, and farmers who are practicing regenerative or practicing climate-friendly solutions are also often um, kind of philosophically isolated too, is that they don't have a neighbor who's trying to do these weird things on their farm, you know. <laughs> so all you need to farm is a farm club and a really great name. <laughs> And stickers, don't forget the stickers. And stickers, yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe that was more like a highlight reel of all my favorite moments from part one with Dana Penrice from Young Agrarians. Young Agrarians is a farmer-to-farmer educational network for new and aspiring ecological, organic, and regenerative producers in Canada. In Alberta, they're probably best known for their summer and winter mixers and their apprenticeship program. In the apprenticeship program, new and aspiring producers can get hands-on experience working on a farm for a growing season. Dana is the Prairie Programs Manager for Young Agrarians. She also works for Holistic Management Canada. She's originally from Lacombe, but a few years back she moved out to her partner Ted's family farm in Manitoba. So an actual recap of what me and Dana talked about in part one or episode 39. There's a growing group of people who want to get involved in agriculture, but didn't grow up on a farm or ranch. 
Now, honestly, there's not a heck of a lot of data out there on new farmers, but in 2015, the National New Farmers Coalition and the University of Manitoba did a survey. And in that survey, they found 68% of the producers who completed the survey did not grow up on a farm or ranch. Just to give you a bit more context to that number, because it almost makes it sound like nearly 70% of producers out there didn't grow up on a farm or ranch, which is definitely not the case. This survey was a national survey of new farmers. So they're specifically seeking out new farmers to learn more about their experience. Three quarters of the survey's respondents either were new farm operators or described themselves as aspiring farmers. The remainder were either experienced producers or producers who had retired. Now, interestingly, that exact same survey found the vast majority of new farmers wanted to use climate-friendly, regenerative agricultural practices, which in a way makes them a farm solution that's also a climate solution that we probably want to get into the game. The problem is new farmers face a number of challenges that prevent them from getting into the game, or at least make it difficult. In Alberta, farms are becoming fewer and they're becoming larger. And on top of that, farmland's not exactly cheap. You pretty much need to own farmland to buy farmland. You could inherit, but that's not really an option if you're a new farmer who didn't grow up on a farm. Plus, on top of that, as a new farmer, you have to deal with a very uncomfortable and conflicting feeling that you're desperately trying to secure land access for yourself so you can get started, so you can get involved in agriculture. But you also probably have this awareness that the land was acquired from Indigenous people here in a pretty shameful manner. Dana makes a pretty good case in part one that getting new farmers out on the land would be a big benefit for rural communities, the climate, and the land in general. In part two, we're going to talk about how we can get new farmers out on the land, getting them involved in agriculture, despite all those challenges I just went over. But first, I asked Dana a question that somewhat shakes the foundations that this episode, that Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, is based upon. This whole idea that we need agriculture producers to play a key role in addressing climate change. Do you feel the role of the agriculture producers changed in the last 20 to 30 years? Um, again, not a historian on agriculture at all, uh, not my area of expertise, but I just got the thinking that I feel up until recently, we were just really asking producers to you know, produce food, fiber, medicine, maybe a little bit of fuel. Uh, but now we're asking a lot. We want that, we want ecosystem goods and services, we want climate action. So yeah, I don't know, do you think the role has changed? And if it has, do you think it's fair to lump this all on producers? <laughs> this is like the best question. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, I think that it's, uh, it's starting to weigh on people. Um, and I hear it among regenerative farmers. Um, one of the, things I heard once, I don't know what the source is, but I heard once is like uh, the concept of the agrarian imperative. And it's this, how I think the person was describing it is it's like this imperative to be practicing things in a way 
that's like the agrarian ideal of like growing food, but in a way that's with nature and that is providing, um, yeah, like ecosystem goods and services and fixing the climate and all of that kind of stuff. And I think there's like a real um, dynamic in here of like pushing people towards mental health breakdown <laughs> of um, trying to put them on, like put all of those pressures on. It's kind of like when you're, I like we talked about ideals before and your values, when your values are like to try and save the world, that is, puts kind of a big heavy weight on your back. And a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and so one of the things we need to be thinking about is how do we help people to be resilient through that? Because it's not that the challenge, we can't just like take the challenge of way of like, oh, let's just pretend climate change doesn't exist and just ask farmers to just do food and fiber. Mm. Um, like, it's there. So how do we build people up to be able to cope with that? Um, one of, I, I work with a group called the Human Venture Institute and that thinks a lot about like social challenges. And one of the um, uh, concepts that we've talked about is the idea of an ex existential field hospital. And <laughs> the idea of that is that we're like facing existential problems and people are trying to take on these these challenges which is is really needed we need people to step up to the challenge to step into the responsibility um but they also need like that support in terms of managing existentially and when there's times when you do break down or when you know you're kind of like teetering <laughs> that you have like a field hospital or a community or uh, um, supports that you can go to, to be like, I just need a break. <laughs> um, because much of that recovery, I think from breakdown um, is around rest and rejuvenation and reframing. And um, it's not like, I don't think it's that it's kind of like, you know, the life has ups and downs in it. And if your life is just like a steady state of happiness, like that's not a very existentially fulfilling life. Um, you know, life, what my mentor from the human venture says like, life doesn't care if you're comp or uh, life doesn't care if you're happy. Life cares if you're competent. And that implies that life comes with challenges. And so it's how you deal with those challenges. It's how you deal with those periods of depression and anxiety that come with dealing with these existential things. Uh, that's important. And it's not that it's all on you individually. You know, we can create community supports to help each other through that. Um, and, you know, that sense of isolation we were talking about can be one of the most dangerous things to um, pushing people into that unhealthy mental space. Um, so farmers are like really susceptible to that kind of thing. Um, there's a great book, um, I can't remember what the title is, but it's uh, about how the solution to anxiety, depression is social engagement and, and connection with people. And so that's, I mean, a lot of what Young Agrarians is providing for people is that mental health support 
while we're not like explicitly saying it, <laughs> um, that reweaving of the rural community is what can help people through those those times. I always thought of you guys more of as like a event management and party company and less as therapists, but now I've got a whole new land. <laughs> That's totally what we are. <laughs> <laughs> Um, building off the last question, and I know we've kind of had discussions on this in the past, like, do we need a different word for farmer or does the definition of what a farmer or agriculture producer, sorry, doesn't need to change. It's just, it's, it's, it maybe it was always very varied and it's just my limited experience, but I think there's so many aspects to it. There's like the underskilled farmhand like myself or migrant labor or people that kind of have one foot in one foot out and then there's the like full-on cliche farmer and like the farmer is evolving from you know stereotypically it was a bunch of white males and still a bunch of white males out there but it, that part's also changing too um so yeah i don't know if the, the word needs to change or we need a different word i'm just kind of wondering where your thoughts are around that I was, I really like this question too. And my answer was yes. <laughs> I think there's so much tied up in the assumptions about what a farmer is, that it would just be nice to like shed that off and um, come up with something new. <laughs> and uh, I think far, what the word farmer also causes a lot of divisions within a colonial context. Um, and there's, other words that could be much better bridges um, and commonality between, you know, indigenous, non-indigenous, urban, rural, um, farming background, non-farming background that brings everybody into the same kind of thing. Like, you know, the, the function of farming to me is around food procurement, fiber procurement, all those other things. And it's, uh, you know, there's much better words for that, like gardener and grower and, you know, cultivating and like all these kinds of things that um, it could engage people more. One of the words that I kind of like to use a little bit more is land manager, hmm. um, because I really believe that humans have this role. One of our roles in the world is as not necessarily like a land manager, but a land steward. And, you know, we have this relationship with the, with the land and helping it to um, thrive. And we've had that relationship for generations and generations. And so a word like that fit within that context, I think would be much more helpful for us. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. No, I think you got something with land land manager or land steward. I really like that. I feel like that can encompass quite a few quite a few of us that are involved in food production. Yeah, and it puts the um, emphasis back on the land and the ecology itself. It's like using the animals or the food production like as the tool, right, to making the land better. And um, you know, it, it takes the emphasis off of the end product. Like some holistic management uh, practitioners will refer to like their beef as the byproduct of the, what they're actually doing, which is land management. So we've arrived at the part of the episode where Dana unpacks 
how we can unleash new farmers as a farm solution that's also a climate solution. You may also be really surprised by her answer. Because Dana doesn't just say, just give new farmers a bunch of money and sell them land at dirt cheap prices. Now please don't misunderstand me here. Both those things would be extremely helpful. But both those things are very unlikely to happen right now. Maybe they will one day though. This may be a good moment to point out to acknowledge that new farmers aren't the only agriculture producers who want to do good things for communities, food, and the land. There are agriculture producers out there who grew up on farms and ranches who use climate-friendly agricultural practices because they believe that's the way agriculture needs to go. They do exist, I have met these producers. And if we can link up these trailblazers with this bold group of new farmers, I think the prairies will be in pretty good hands. All right, uh, so looks like uh, new farmers are definitely like a, a force that we can unleash as a climate solution. How do we unleash this force? <laughs> oh man, man, I think like unleashing that force is just a lot around championing people and um, like giving people at a very early stage in their farming interest that like boost of like, just do it, just get it, you know, you get excited about what they're doing. And um, like, we can do that for each other and like, you know, kind of peer to peer type of stuff. But when that happens, I think in between generations, it's a big deal. And also when it happens between non-farming people and people interested in farming, that's a big deal. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of new farmers coming from a non-farming background get told by their parents or their community, they're like, what are you thinking? Like, why would you go into farming? You're not gonna make any money. It's super hard work. And, you know, like why? Mm -hmm. But, um, that isn't always the case, you know, like there's a lot of things shifting and you can build a viable business in farming and um, like lots of new farmers are into like, how can we not work ourselves to death? How can we be, you know, farm smarter, not harder kind of idea. Um, and just having somebody in their corner that's just like, yeah, you can do it is, is like what unleashes it. <laughs> and it, and then just helping them, like just helping them kind of keep that pathway kind of going. So in Young Agrarians, we kind of have a model that's like the new farmer pathway. Mm -hmm. And it starts off with like the curious about farming. And that's like really where those people just need like that encouragement of like, try it kind of thing. Um, and then we have the stage that's like want to farm. So they've tried it and they want to farm, but they need all the resources. You know, they need the land, they need the um, like some infrastructure probably like tools all that kind of stuff um, and so like if if you're in a position to help somebody do that I think that that's like one way to unleash people um, you know giving somebody like 10 acres of land off of your um, um, grain land or whatever to try a market garden like those kinds of things um, are really cool and like trying to test out like in your own community like what 
is there anybody out there looking for that? Like kind of like the custom grazing thing. Like, can you just put an ad out there and see who answers it? Um, and then I think then the next stage we have is like am farming. So like, um, or sorry, it's can farm. So can farm is kind of like people who have like, they want to farm, they've gained the experiences and like they have the skills now. And then, so like they actually can farm, they can go out and do it. Um, and then uh, the last one is am farming. So somebody who's like running a farming business or um, managing a farm in some kind of way. Um, just uh, circling back uh, to like, how do we unleash new farmers? Uh, one thing I'm curious about, because as a person who came to farming late in my life, like I realized veggies was just such an entry easy entry point, And that's the one I went for. And then by a weird turn of events, I wound up really like working cattle. But um, and, and you were saying like in the prairies, especially in Alberta, like we really need to get people into grains and cattle. I'm just thinking to unleash this new farmer force in those particular two subsectors. What do you think we need to change or do to make that possible? Because it, it, like they're, they're capital yeah. intensive, right? Like they're hard to get into. So how can we make it easier, I guess? Yeah, I mean, the, the in cattle the um, and livestock, like there are some pretty uh, like low overhead ways of getting into it. Mm. Um, so one example is Lunafield Farm, mm -hmm. um, Lydia Carpenter and Vion Prinsloo, they're in Manitoba here, um, but this would be replicable anywhere. Like when they started farming, they had basically, basically I remember Lydia showing this picture where it's like when they started, they had a quad, a dog and a whole bunch of electric fencing. And so they didn't own the cows and they didn't own the land. And um, that was one way for them to basically start doing custom grazing. They had um, worked out deals with their, I, I think it was the cattle owner. Um, it must've been where like, Part of that their fee for the custom grazing was that they were paid in animals and then they started direct marketing those animals uh, and started to build up their own herd that way and like now they're um you know they own their own land and um or are on their own land and they you know they um own their own animals like they've really built up that infrastructure just from that that kind of starting with nothing um so I think it's like really doable in in livestock. It's just I think it in livestock it's that confidence that is the big thing. So one of the things we do we did in the apprenticeship program when we could get together was we uh, did a low stress livestock handling course with Dylan Biggs and all of our apprentices. It didn't matter if they were veggie farmers or grain farmer or like or working on a veggie farmer, grain farmer, whatever got to have this experience and I, like I watching uh, the apprentices like learn how to move a herd of 250 heifers on their own was like to me I hope that they felt like a ton of confidence in that because it's like when you don't have any experience doing that you're like whoa but when you realize that you can do it um it just shows that it's yeah we just we need to show people that it's doable mm. and uh i i think those kinds of big impact experiences i mean derek you did that course so maybe you can talk about it <laughs> with you yeah no and i, I think if you, you bring up a really good point and it's probably very 
unique to agriculture, or at least like a lot of work that involves using your hands. That sure you could read about uh, handling livestock or low stress livestock handling, but until you're like in the middle of it and things are happening and people are yelling at you stuff like you're really not gonna really get your head around it and realize it's not as daunting as it seemed before until you really get into it which yeah it could make the sector unique in some ways yeah yeah and i think in grain farming like an equivalent to that would be like learning to drive a big four-wheel drive tractor or something like that or the combine right like it's it seems really scary but once you do it there was a in our first year of the apprenticeship i think that was there was um a girl that was working on a, a market garden farm and we did one of our tours at an organic grain farm that was part of the apprenticeship program too and she got to drive the big tractor and she was just like so happy because she was like she was so excited to learn to drive like a small tractor in the market garden context but when she got to go drive a big one it was like really cool <laughs> so it's like yeah some of it is just actually making things look cool <laughs> um yeah and uh i think in the grain world too like i think some of this unleashing maybe it doesn't quite feel like total unleashing but it's like building partnerships between generations like um you know we get so caught up in the succession planning stuff and how hard it is um, but like, why not just like start a conversation like at, or start like with something easy where you just like a grain farmer hires a young farmer to just come do some stuff on his place, you know, like um, just those simple kinds of things I think are, it doesn't like you don't have to become the farm owner immediately, <laughs> right? You can work your way up to it and um, you know, be a farmhand for a while, which is perfectly fine, or be and become the farm manager and then, you know, start to think about ownership like five years down the road instead of being like, I need I need to figure out how to get all this equipment right away. Also thinking of like there might be things we need to do for producers to make it easier for them to pass on that knowledge to the folks, I guess like myself who didn't grow around up in that culture and community that it's it's not like they went to like university on how to like teach people how to do that. And not saying you have to, but it's also like for the most part, they're busy. And if they don't really have, if you're not helping out, you're kind of in the way in a lot of cases. So I think, yeah, I don't know if we need some like kind of supports there too for the actual producers to help them transfer that knowledge in a non like rip their hair out kind of way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I think in our, in our apprenticeship program, we've started doing more mentor training. Mm. Um, because you're totally right. It just because you're a farmer doesn't mean you're a great teacher or a great mentor. Um, it is a whole skill set in and of itself. And I, I totally agree that we need to be working on that. There's some amazing mentors out there and like, how can we help those mentors train other mentors? Because we, farming is just so reliant on this like informal education program <laughs> that uh, relies on farmers to teach people, so. What I heard from Dana was social connections and community are the keys to unleashing new farmers. I never really thought of it that way before, and it's kind of true. Those social connections can open up opportunities for land access that you'd never considered before, like 
getting paid in cattle to custom graze somebody else's cattle, or running a market garden on the few acres the landowner decided not to seed into grain. That community is there to support you and encourage you during those times when things are looking a little bleak and in those moments when you're questioning your lifestyle choice to be an agriculture producer. And yes, I would argue being an agriculture producer is a lifestyle choice, not a career choice. It's not exactly one of those jobs you can leave behind in the office. I asked Dana if she could think of any success stories of a new farmer or young farmer in Alberta that really highlights the importance of those social connections and community. And here's what she had to say. We, so one of the ones I think is really cool lately that's happened is um, uh, Donovan and Lisa Kitt. So they own the farmstead up at um, Good Fair, Alberta. And uh, they just recently built a passive solar home and you know i i think we often like maybe the question question was aimed at like what cool land management things are doing or whatever but to me the story is impactful because um these young people have been supported in enter like coming into farming so um lisa comes from a farm outside of grimshaw where uh she grew up on an organic farm there and kind of caught the farming bug and started her own uh, market garden there um, but then she met well she knew Donovan her whole life but then her and Donovan decided to get together <laughs> which was great um, and Donovan grew up on a farm uh, at Good Fair and uh, had really similar values and you know they, they were both just like really supported by the community and coming back to farming um, and I think like one of the things you see with new farmers is that they have a really hard time kind of um, making some of the bigger things like infrastructure development, like building a passive solar home. Um, they have a hard time doing that because they're often like don't have um, secure land access. Like they, they're kind of transient. Out <laughs> of what I might call them is that they, you know, they're, moving around from, they, they might have a lease here for a few years and then they're moving on to something else. And um, so it's hard for them to actually like be able to invest in something like that. But to me, like building a passive solar home is a big project, an expensive project. And it just shows that like, we can support new farmers in a way that makes them feel stable and secure and helps them to build the dream that they have for farming. And like, now that they have that, what, like, what a great, resource for their community they're always like bringing new other new people in to come learn about farming and you know the um that you know, they're going to be there for a while which i think is really important um so yeah that might not kind of be one that is like a traditional climate friendly kind of thing but uh um it just kind of came to mind for me Oh, that's a good one. And they're both hilarious, too, so that's important for the community. <laughs> okay, so um, basically the idea is that, like, farmers who have, like, a solid business viability and financial security and, like, the community around them is really supportive. 
you know, they have a lot, I think they have a lot better time integrating some of these farm climate solutions that are like big, like, like a passive solar house. You know, there's a lot of risk that can be associated with trying new practices. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that there's just like, what it's, it's interesting because I think you could, in some ways you could say that business viability is a climate solution um, because mm -hmm. it, it helps people to manage that risk by knowing where they're at in their, in their business financially. Mm. That is a really good point. Yeah. If you're just trying to make a living, it's really hard or you're just getting by. It's really hard to sort of like worry about saving the planet at the same time. Some people manage to do it, which is really impressive, but I hear you. Yeah. yeah. And I should say that like part of Lisa and Donovan's story is that Donovan works off farm. And so that's part of the income that comes to it. Mm. Um, the off farm income is always like a really weird space in new farmers. I'm sure farmers in general, because I think there's this ideal that people have of like, you're only successful at farming if you are 100% farming. And I don't think that that's actually true because I know a lot of farmers that who are 100% farming, but probably aren't making that much money, <laughs> you know? Um, and at the same time, I know farmers who are, you know, have an off-farm job and farm that are doing really well. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that comes down to figuring out like in holistic management what the first place we start is like figuring out um what is the context and what's the future resource base that you want uh to be living in and like what are those quality of life things that um you want and like for me personally i really love my jobs obviously from the, the quirky question uh, <laughs> that we had before and uh I want to be working off farm and so but that doesn't shouldn't be reflective of like whether or not our farm is successful or not it can be part of a successful farming enterprise and successful like living on the land rurally mm. no I guess that's just a different form of diversification like I had this exact same yeah. conversation with uh that guy who graduated my graduating class from uh, young agrarians and we both agreed like I don't want to give up my off-farm job like it's it, it it's a nice stable form of income and like it, in both our cases like it was also one of our passion projects so that in itself was a reason to keep doing it yeah and also like the statistic is like that it's got to be over 65 percent of farms mm. farmers have off-farm income so it's like, why are we living up to this ideal that everybody in the industry can achieve? I don't know. Because I, I remember like when I first got out to Alberta, like I remember learning that very quickly, like off-farm jobs, like the downfall of the modern farm. I was like, okay. And I just kind of accepted it and never really questioned it. But then, yeah, now a few years later, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. I can see in some cases, like working too much, people crash. As we know, we've discussed that at the beginning. So yeah. there, there is that side to it. But I think there is a possibly a way to achieve that balance and maybe it is like using yeah. those holistic management principles as you said yeah and and yeah it's hard because you say that on one side and like you say it's like is there this bigger problem of off-farm jobs or subsidizing farming in general mm. right like are you yeah are we creating a system where farm viability and farm financial um farm profitability is just so poor that we're just like allowing that to keep happen because happening because people are working off farm. This whole idea of off farm jobs kind of subsidizing agriculture, 
has always seemed kind of perverse to me. 47% of farm operators in Alberta, so a farm operator is considered to be an individual on the farm or individuals on a farm who make management decisions. 47% of them in Alberta said they had off-farm work, according to the Statistics Canada 2016 census. And if you're curious, that's actually pretty close to the national average. Of those Alberta operators who had off-farm work, 36% said they were putting in more than 40 hours a week into their off-farm job, which has got to make you wonder how much time does that leave for family, friends, community, and enjoying the simple pleasures in life. I also found some stats on farm family household income, which they're kind of old. They're about 10 years out of date, but they're revealing nonetheless. So from 2001 to 2013, off-farm income made up 79% of Alberta family farm household income on average annually. What could this number be telling us? And you, you do have to keep in mind that this is taking the total of farm household income and the total of off-farm income and then averaging it out across the sector. It's not like every single farm and ranch is getting close to 80% of its farm family household income from an off-farm job. There are definitely some out there that are, though. One thing the number is telling us is that off-farm job probably pays a heck of a lot better than the on-farm job. Two, there's probably somebody on that family farm who might be involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the farm, but they don't see themselves as the decision maker on the farm, who probably has a full-time job to keep the farm afloat. Now I get it, a lot of agriculture is seasonal. You know, there's busy times on farms and ranches and quiet times on farms and ranches. And as I said in the interview with Dana, I don't necessarily think an off-farm job's a bad thing. That is if you can keep a work-life balance. There is something about the people who produce food, fiber, medicine, fuels, these these things that are pretty essential to life, there's something about them having to go out and find off-farm work so they can continue to produce food, fiber, medicine, and fuels that just, just doesn't sit right with me. And now on top of all this, we're asking them to help us enhance ecosystem goods and services and help us tackle climate change. It sounds like to me we need a paradigm shift. And of course, me and Dana talked about a paradigm shift in agriculture. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think when I, when, when I think broadly about like what needs to change to help farmers, whether they're new farmers or existing farmers, get into regenerative farming or start to implement regenerative practices, um on the land I think one of the big things is that 
To me, I think other, the, there's a lot of practices and principles that are already there that are already being taught. Like that knowledge is kind of there and available. Like YouTube is an amazing thing <laughs> for helping this out. Um, and I think one of the biggest things like preventing it is like, as one of my mentors, Blaine Jurdis says, and he probably stole it from somebody else is like, the biggest thing that needs to change is what's going on between your ears. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think he takes it from Nicole Masters, who says, like, the biggest problem in farming is compaction, and it's not compaction in the land, it's compaction in your head. <laughs> um, and to me, that speaks to, like, this, um, because if you ask any farmer, they're going to say, yeah, like, I steward the land, I want the best for the land, I'm, I'm, you know, treat the environment good. And they, you know, they, I know that they're striving to do that. Um, but I think that when it actually comes down to like making some of these big changes that are going to be required to actually shift towards a more regenerative type of farming, um, that the, there's a difference between our espoused values and our practiced values. So our espoused values are like the ones that we like, it's like, yeah, I think I'm a great person. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think I'm an environmentalist or yeah, I think that I'm like doing good for the land. But like, if somebody actually looked at your practices, is that actually true? Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think it's kind of this like real honest conversation that we had need to have with ourselves as farmers and as land stewards. And, you know, I think what we need to be helping people to do is to develop, like, to cultivate this really strong commitment to pra actually practicing those values, to implementing them, and to, like, kind of being the change that you want to see in the world. And the hard thing with farming is that, like, there's just so many things that can take you off course. And um, you're constantly going to have to be making compromises of, you know, like I can't implement this because I don't have the capital to do it or, um, you know, that kind of thing. But when it's, it's when those, dis those compromises are being made, like that's when we really need to focus in and say like, okay, what are all the creative solutions that we can bring um, to actually make this happen? And to, you know, we're often having to like uh, make the decision between making money or supporting the ecology. And how can we, like, when when we're faced with that, how can we, like, try and figure out how to do both? I don't, like, I don't really know that that, that probably sounds like a terrible response, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, like, even on our farm, like, we're trying to transition towards regenerative. Not every field is in regenerative mode right now because we just can't transition everything at once. And um, it's like, we don't have the equipment to do it. And for us to buy the equipment, we would have to take on more acres. And by taking on more acres, that takes away from the regenerative stuff that we're trying to do on our own farm. Um, so like, it's kind of this just way of thinking that we just really need to like figure out and support each other in, in holding up those ideals and, um, and demonstrating that it kind of can be done. I think the other like compromise is often between like short-term gain and long-term gain. Like it's like, 
yeah, I could be putting, you know, uh, you know, I need to put fertilizer in the ground to get the crop up, right? Um, versus the long-term gain of like, okay, I'm, I could be doing this through putting in cover crops and integrating livestock. And, you know, that's a year off of me trying to actually um, get a cash crop from that. But, and I might have to work my off-farm job for another year. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're actually building longer term resilience through it. Um, so yeah, like to me, it's like all about paradigms and whether you're talking about like farmers or policymakers, like there's paradigms in all of it that kind of need to be broken down and really questioned at this time to really push ourselves forward um, and really like hold ourselves accountable to like the challenge that we're facing in terms of climate change. What did, um, I was thinking about like all these compromises you mentioned, like you, you, you come to a crossroad, make a decision, then all of a sudden there's another one right after that and another one, another one, just, I don't know, what can producers use as like a framework or like a, a, a guiding start to like make those decisions? Because they're pretty damn important, right? Yeah. I think there's different ways, like uh, different frameworks that, people can use, I guess. I mean, I'm totally biased with holistic management because it- <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, holistic management is a framework that can can help with that. And I, I think that, I mean, it's not that like all holistic management practitioners have their espoused values and practiced values perfectly aligned because that never happens. Mm. Um, but, it, it is, from what I've seen and what attracted me to holistic management was that I did see farmers like shift direction in their farm. And that's what, you know, I think we're looking for in this transition is like, this isn't about minuscule kind of changes, although like minuscule change, changes can be helpful. It's about making a pretty big shift where you're saying like, okay, I'm not going to apply 100% max fertilizer every year. Um, and uh, what holistic management does is it helps you to kind of define those ideals of and that quality of life and that future vision that you have. And then it provides like a testing framework uh, through testing questions that help you to decide whether or not that's actually in line with what you're trying to work towards. And it works through all of the social, environmental and economic factors uh, that come into that decision. So you're making much more holistic decisions um, about the actions that you're taking. But it, I, but I like in saying all of that, like it's, you know, I, I kind of joke that it does like, I am biased about it because I have really, you know, gotten excited about holistic management and have become an educator in it. But um, I think like just digging a little bit deeper is that the the challenge of transition often comes down to like this the social and cultural environment of are you in a situation where you can question each other's thinking and are you in a relationship where you're with your family where they can they'll support like think trying something differently and often that's not the case and so trying to figure out how to do that um, is really, really hard. Like it comes down to those, like, you know, the, the, I think the pressures of like, 
you know, my dad said that this is the way that we do things. And so that we always do it this way is a huge pressure. And I also think the pressure of like, my neighbors are going to see that field and it's going to be full of weeds is also a huge pressure, which that's like kind of the exciting thing about new farmers is that they, you know, they're, they're often in that idealistic stage and they're not afraid to do the, that. And, you know, we talked about coffee shops before, like, um, our friend Ian Griebel, he always says, like, I want to be the one that's talked about at the coffee shop because that means that I'm doing something different and that I'm trying something new. And he's like, if I'm going to do something new, I'm going to put it right on the highway so that people know that <laughs> I'm doing something and they'll, they'll start talking about it and maybe they'll think differently about the way that they're doing things too. Well, that's a great attitude to have. <laughs> Okay, uh, last question, and you're gonna have to close your eyes for this one. Uh, I'm curious that if you, so we do have a few issues with our food system at the moment. If you envision the food system of the future, the one that we need, what does it look like? Can you describe it? I really was inspired by um, Courtney White, who wrote a book called Grass Soil Hope, and in that he he drew an image of uh, the carbon farming landscape. And whenever I, you know, envision the future, I really envision it. And it, it just has, it's like a great, just kind of drawing of like rural connecting to urban and all kinds of diff like different types of farming. There's like small scale vegetable farms near the city. There's larger land, um, ranches and cattle like out in the broader landscape. There's uh, room for wildlife and um, there's conservationists out studying the wildlife and there's artists out in the field drawing, you know, being inspired by nature. There's solar and wind. Um, integrated into all of that. There's watersheds happening through all of it. Um, what else is in it? It's just this really neat image that's like, oh yeah, that's what we're working towards. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, like I think it's hard to put into words sometimes because it's it's so um, diverse and complex and um, there's a lot of things happening on it. Um, one of the other uh, inspirational things that I've um, taken from, uh, I think it was Wes Jackson at the Land Institute. Um, he said that the future farmer is not, is probably going to be much more like um, a naturalist of like the, um, you know, 1600s to 1800s kind of thing. It's more of somebody who's like observing and tweaking and you know trying to understand the minutia of ecosystems but placing it within this broader picture of ecology they'll be walking across the landscape and looking at birds and writing things down and um doing much more of that than you know actively head down in the dirt kind of thing <laughs> um not that looking at your dirt is and your soil is a bad thing at all, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like uh, having time for that kind of stuff and prioritizing it and valuing that kind of stuff is what, how I think that the, the future will be. I hope it will be. 
we recorded the interview with Dana back in April of 2021. And we really had hoped we could get both the new farmer episodes out there before this year's crop of young agrarian apprentices arrived on their farms and ranches. You know, just give them a bit of extra inspiration for the growing season ahead. Unfortunately, Rural Roots had a pretty busy spring, and this episode wound up being shelved, temporarily, of course. So I'm guessing by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be August. And you, as a farm apprentice, you've probably experienced a few things already. So your body's probably recovered from that initial shock of doing manual labor every day. Your coffee intake has probably drastically increased. You've probably broken something that's not yours. You've discovered, and this likely happened when they started cutting hay, that there's this whole other circle of hell when it comes to hay fever. And your t-shirt tan has probably hit that point where there's no turning back. There may be a few things you haven't experienced yet though. So maybe you haven't witnessed your first farmer blow up. It's the quiet ones that are usually the scariest ones when they lose it. And maybe you haven't seen your mentor cry yet. And maybe you haven't felt the warm embrace of your mentor's gratitude for all the hard work you put into their land. But I promise you, you will feel that by the end of the season. And don't think for a second when you leave your mentor's farm this fall, that's the end of your agricultural odyssey. I'm not too sure if you're reading between the lines in part one or part two, but I was an apprentice in the Young Agrarians program in 2017. If I include myself, there's four of us from the 2017 apprenticeship program that are still involved in agriculture in some capacity, and I think there was only six or eight apprentices that year in total. Mackenzie, and I'm sorry, Mac, if I say your last name wrong here, Mackenzie Boutelet is an integral part of Steel Pony Farms in Red Deer, which, in my opinion, is one of the most successful veggie CSAs in Alberta. Josh Bateman works at the Land of Dreams, which is a new urban farm slash community garden in Calgary. And Jason Stuka, who honestly had the hardest job out of all of us to stay involved in agriculture because he was determined to be involved in grains production. From what I understand, he's got a pretty good gig for himself on a grain farm near Camrose. As for myself, I grow my veggies out on a farm in Ditsbury. And once in a while, I get a help out with a friend's herd of cattle out in Red Deer. If this growing season is your first venture into agriculture, or if this season was the first time you had to teach agriculture to somebody who wasn't a family member, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all your efforts. We really need people like you right now. I hope you have an amazing summer full of great memories. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days and webinars, we assist rural communities in developing community renewable energy projects. We produce a farmer's blog. We run social innovation labs. And of course, we do this podcast. 
For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Lance Tailfeathers in Lethbridge, Brenda Barrett in Alex, and Marie Galanka in Athabasca. The podcast receives funding from a variety of foundations in Alberta. Parts of the podcast were recorded in Calgary. So that means parts of the podcast were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the home of Métis Region 3. Happy farming and ranching wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.